Hey everybody, this is RJ Thompson once again uh, meeting with uh, you on the City View podcast. I hope you're all doing well. Uh, I'm sitting here with uh, Tony Nicholas in his studio. Um, let me give you a little bit of visuals here. So uh, <clears throat> we're over in the Ward Bakery building and um, his studio is awesome and very busy visually in the, in the good sense that there's awesome stuff everywhere, like complete 360 degree, like wherever you look, there's cool stuff. Um, I would definitely recommend coming over here if given the opportunity. Uh, and then of course, that's assuming Tony invites you over. Um, he may not, he may not, but uh, at any rate, uh, thanks Tony for, for sitting down with me and uh, why don't you uh, just tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, first of all, I'm happy to be taking part in this. It's, uh, I've been looking forward to it. Uh, I'm glad we could finally get together. Uh, I'm an artist from the area. I grew up in Niles, went to Howland High School, graduated from YSU in the 90s, moved away, went to graduate school in Rochester, uh, came back, taught a little bit at YSU. Uh, that evolved into doing art shows you know, as a vendor, and uh, that led to running the Artists of the Rust Belt, uh, which I've been, now we've evolved it into a nonprofit, and it's going forward and uh, making things happen. Are all of your degrees in art? Yes. Uh, my degree from YSU is BFA, concentrating in photography, and my master's is in imaging arts from RIT. What's that? Imaging arts, basically photography. Okay. Uh, but it was a lot of writing, as you would know most grad programs are. But uh, it covered the gamut of how to use photography, uh, visual you know, arts in a lot of ways. How would you say that that background, that art education background, has helped you uh, with with your practice uh, as you're a practicing photographer, um, but also artist of the Rust Belt? Uh, it makes you, it trains you to be very observant. You, uh, friends of mine that know me well call me the noticer because I don't miss a thing. I notice everything. And it's just your, your sense of observation. You pay attention to everything around you. Uh, and, you know, that's... Uh, that awareness helps you gain perspective, and you pay attention to things. And uh, and as and coming from someone who wants to, you know, uh, be a small part of helping improve this area, uh, I think that helps. Uh, just being to see what's going on and try to contribute. And that contribution primarily is in through artists of the Rust Belt. Right, yeah. And, and it stemmed from, I, I believe, from uh, my own needs as an artist, looking for a place to exhibit, a place to show your work, a place to sell your work, uh, to promote yourself. And that's where it kind of started. And I, I, did a, I started a project that I'm still working on, and it, and it was named Artists of the Rust Belt simply because I had, at the time I began the project, uh, the artists of the Rust Belt, friends of mine who started that, was just beginning. And I was doing portraits of local artists in their studio spaces. And that's, I just gave the project that name. And through that process, I met artists that I didn't know, just, you know, I'd cross paths with, and I said, hey, could I photograph you in your studio? And the more I photographed, the more people I met. And I was like, all these people, all this talent, and they really don't have many outlets. And this wasn't that long ago. This started about six years ago. And that's what started to 
percolate, I guess you could say, in my head was, man, there just needs to be more opportunities for people to be seen because there's so much talent, you know. And it, it started to not look so much at myself but everybody else because we all kind of wanted the same thing, opportunity. Uh, and, in, and that being said, that rolled into, you know, as we get more exposure, it helps make the city look better. You know, and the arts, you know, I've said it many times, the arts lead that revitalization on every city that I've ever, now that I've been involved in it, I start to examine and go to see other arts communities. And that always helps, you know, lead a city uh, to better days. Uh, and that's kind of where it, you know, it grew from my own needs to wanting to just provide it for everybody or as many as I could. When you're visiting, I, I have a, a number of responses to that because as an artist, of course, we can break off in all different kinds of tangents. But um, I think uh, in the as it relates to opportunity, especially for, for artists, not just here, but in general, uh, opportunity is, is viewed a little bit differently. Like, oh, we need a place to show our work. That's one form of opportunity. Some of the festivals, summer festival, et cetera, you know, but uh, one of the things that I've always struggled with, and maybe you can detail this and how it applies to artists of the Rust Belt, is how some artists want all this opportunity to create and they have trouble with the business aspect of things uh, and, and not only how to manage that, but how to create business-driven opportunities for themselves using their artistic talents. Could you speak to that a little bit? Sure, yeah. And I learned it, you know, my own experience. It was, you know... Uh, That's like the best way to learn it. Yeah. It yeah, is, it's just... It is. You have to go through it. And, uh, and then once you learn it, you just... Me, you know, I guess I'm kind of a, you know, a teacher at heart. And I wanted to help other people as I saw the things I was struggling through and learning about. Uh, and that's a big, you know, seeing yourself as a business is the last thing an artist usually looks at. Uh, how to price your work, how to promote yourself, that all comes into it. And, and, you know, even in that sense, that's the last thing the artist wants to be. Right. Oh, yeah. You know, everybody wants someone to come out of the clouds and say, I will manage this for you. You just keep creating. Uh, But it just doesn't really work that way, you know. And it might for a very slim few, but usually you have to pound the pavement yourself in every way to promote yourself. And when you went to visit these folks uh, in their studios, not only is that fascinating on a number of levels, because that's very intimate. This space right. we're in, folks, is it's intimate. I mean, this you live here, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you live here, you work here, um, and it's not every day that uh, you know you get to see an artist's studio in that very specific, hyper-specific way. And um, going to visit them in their different studios, you get to see how their mind works a little bit. Their, 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 their artistic process, their methodology. Um, you don't have to name names, but I, I am just maybe selfishly curious. What was the most interesting studio you went in when you did this? Uh, there's a few that, uh, that stick out. One was a, a girl, a really well-respected artist. Uh, she's from Sharon. And that's saying that she'll probably figure out who I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm so sorry. But her studio at the time was in her house. She didn't have a studio space other than a spare room in her house. But everything was so organized, paints on a shelf, 
tubes stood up, leaned on the wall, the colors all in order, basically. Everything was, Like the spectrum. Yeah, the spectrum yeah. was laid out <laughs> on the wall in, like, multiple rows, multiple shelves, everything there. Everything was so organized, and yet her work is... You would never see that. You would never imagine her being that, you know, obsessed with organization because her work is very free and loose. Uh, but that was just an interesting thing. And others were, you know, a guy doing metal work and his studio is a garage and it looks like a bomb went off in it. And he comes out with these beautiful sculptures. You know, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah, you learn a lot about them being in their environment. Uh, it's, it's, that's the best part for me. So how have those folks influenced you as an artist and as a leader in the arts? Well, they motivate you to work. When you see how hard people are working and, uh, and the stuff they're doing, it just inspires you. Uh, kind of makes you feel like you're not doing as much oh, as you should. Oh, I, I, many times <laughs> I would walk out and be like, God, they're working way harder than me. <laughs> I need to get on it. Lazy in contrast. Yeah. Right. It's just, you know, it's phenomenal. You see what people are doing. And, uh, and that's, you know, and, and as, as, the rec- as the artist of the Rust Belt is running that, it's Part of that is to you know communicate to other artists. Some of them are older, some of them are younger. It depends on how long they've been in it uh, is the really only factor. But it's you know showing them saying, hey, you know you got to produce and you got to learn your audience and and all that. It all comes into play and it's it kind of helps to be somewhat of a little bit of a a guide for them, you know, and it gives them a place to to learn all that stuff. Uh, so who's your audience? The world. <laughs> Naturally. <laughs> well, you're like here, like if you only do art markets uh, in, the, in the Mahoning Valley, you have to know your audience does not have bottomless pockets. Mm-hmm. And you have to check your ego. And we all want to sell everything for $1,000 a piece. But you can't do that. And you have right. to know that your audience works for their money. And you have to provide them something that they can connect with on some level and it has to be appropriately priced. You know, I can do a show in Cleveland and sell a print for $75 all day long. But if I bring that same price to Youngstown, anywhere, Warren, wherever, uh, you're going to have a hard time selling that print at that. You have to cut it in half or, or, or even lower just to... And then as people, you know, you can always raise your prices. That's what I tell a lot of people. Start low, let people know who you are, and start to collect your work. Entry-level pricing. Right. Yeah. And it's just common sense because we all want to think we're, you know, Picasso or, or some, you know, that, that you can charge whatever, the, the sky's the limit on your pr- prices of your work. Uh, because we value our work. It's who, it's part of us, you know, mm-hmm. and, you, and you want it to, you keep it dear, and, uh, but you have to, you know, if you're going to sell it and make, uh, try to make a living at it, you've got to know your audience. Uh, and, you know, there's other cities where you know you can put almost any price on it. And, there's a, and it's part of educating the audience about the importance of art. That's part of the whole process. Uh, you know, I've, I've heard it said just not about just Youngstown, but in Europe, you know, artists are looked at on a much higher level in the, in the chain of society. Uh, and in the United States, it's a little less, depending on where you're at. You know, uh, it's part of the education of the area. You know, if they're not, if they don't value art, you have to help 
educate them to value what it is uh, and what it can do for you. Yeah, you have to hold their hand through that process. Exactly. And sometimes you've got to pull them along whether they want to come or not. It, it's so surprising how much a difference of an hour makes because you said, you know, you could, you could charge 75 for a print in Pittsburgh or in Cleveland. You come here, 25 you know, that might be as much as you're going right. to get. And they'll question you. Then. Yeah, but yeah, that's yeah, so that happens. part of their own experience. They don't, you know, they may or may not understand what's gone into that print. You know, right. it, it might be something you can print a 1,000 of, but you still spent hours... Uh, creating it and uh, the knowledge you had to gain to be able to produce that education-wise, whether you went to school or not, you still put in the time. It's like any other service. Mm-hmm. You, know, that's, you kind of break it down to a service that you're getting paid for what you know, not just what you can do. Right. You know? And, you know, on that point, I think that's that's something that a lot of people just gloss over. They completely overlook. It's They look at a, at a print or a painting, and it's like, how does that make me feel? And, you know, on that end of things, it's kind of a fascinating conversation in that. That's got to make them really feel something for them to, like, wholeheartedly invest in buying it. But, the, you know, the, the artistic process leading into it, it seems like that's a very small minority of the buying audience mm-hmm. that actually has an interest in that. Right. Absolutely. I remember a teacher in grad school told me once, um, and we were talking strictly about photography. Uh, she said, the fine art world of photography is minute. Uh, and you know, to, to make it in that scene is great, but if you're going to make a living at it, you have to connect outside of that. You, know, you can't just look at your peers, in a sense. You have to think about the bigger audience and... Uh, you have to realize that you know you are you just in the arts alone. You're in a smaller part of society, but you can have a massive effect. You know we've all seen it. If you study a little bit of art history, you see the effect that arts can have on you know a whole country or the world. Uh, we've seen it through other great artists. Mm. It's seemingly everything. Right. Yeah. Right. right down to the clothes that you're wearing Absolutely. or the necklace that you, you know, have I'm on. Sitting here is telling you because I'm trying to build my own brand. You know, of, through designs that started with photography, but it's you know because yeah, it can affect uh, people in you know in ways you can't even be aware of until you get your work seen. Uh, well, on that note, describe your brand if you don't mind. Huh. Well, it's uh, it's on the verge of being put out there more. It's uh, blast furnace designs. Uh, kind of happened over time because of a couple collage prints I made from photos uh, of this winged gas masked emblem and I put it on a few shirts and they sold sold some prints of it Uh, I took a few to New York uh, and a friend of mine there is kind of an arts marketing person and she just put it out there for a few people in some small boutiques to see if they were interested and uh, they were, you know, they bought a few. It's just it's a small thing right now, and I haven't even really put it out there. I just got uh, the official LLC formed and all that in this past few months. Uh, but it's I want to see it, you know, not just on shirts. I want it to go, you know, the, the the plan is for it to go a lot further. Maybe it's on women's dresses, on, but the design can go and evolve. It's already evolved from the original design to like four other evolutions. Uh, but I want to see it everywhere you know 
it's evolved, but it's still staying true to the original concept. Right, right. It's you know, it's definitely comes from the Rust Belt, but I see it. You know, I try to put it in places where it's not just that. Take it out of its element and see what the audience does. Uh, and it's you know, it's it's showing some interest. People like it, and uh, uh, and we're just on the verge of putting it out there on a, a much larger scale. Well, it's good that it's tracking. And by the way, thank you for saying you registered an LLC. Yeah. Um, I'm definitely an advocate of that. I mean, I've, I've started, my God, four LLCs. And I've been fortunate with each one. But, like, I tell my students, artists, hey, you know, if you're going to do this even as a passive uh, form of income, protect your work, right. form that LLC just to protect yourself financially, but also that's going to be the, the conduit through which you can copyright and trademark your work. Right. And uh, can you talk uh, maybe a little bit about, you know, protecting, protecting your, how you protect your art and maybe why some folks here should? Well, yeah, that's it. The, the number one first thing is to, you know, uh, make your business real, official, you know, an LLC. Of Arts, something. business people. Right, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> and I learned a lot of that through uh, Denise Bayer and the legal creative, you know. Uh, before she came, that came into existence, the legal creative, uh, I was reading about copyright and I would, you know, register a few things here and there and learned that you got to put that symbol on there and copyright your stuff to protect yourself. Uh, and then once it started to... I would start to sell things on a broader scale, even though if it was just sending prints around the country on a small scale. Uh, once I started to think about doing building a brand and selling stuff on a bigger scale, you know, once it's out there, people can, and we've seen it in music, and people will steal your ideas, and you can't, you know, you have to protect yourself, and and that's the only way that you have a fighting chance. If someone, if you were to catch someone copying your work. The only way to protect yourself is to be uh, legally connected to the work and have it, you know, protected. And that is why artists uh, are people. Uh, you have to, you have to protect your work. Right. Um, I've seen, I've seen that happen, you know, uh, throughout my career in in both locations, Youngstown and Pittsburgh. I've seen it happen. And I, one of the things that I've encountered is a lot of artists don't think that they have any legal recourse. They think right. that, oh well. You know, I don't have I don't have the budget to to fully fund a, an attorney to attack these people. Or you know, um, they do have resources, and and they certainly do have uh, the opportunity and capability to fight for their work. Right. Um, you know, I, I teach a, a history of graphic design course, and one of the things that we talk about, and uh, I'm sure you're aware, is uh, how Shepard Ferry used an Associated Press photo uh, to create the Obama Hope poster and how he got sued into oblivion right. over that. And I think that's one of the best cautionary tales. Right, absolutely. Yeah. And, he, and he's another, you know, he's a, <laughs> I'm a fan of his. You oh, know, for I, sure. I, for what he's done, there's books of his on my shelf. And, you know, you, you, if you don't learn from people you admire, you know, you're foolish. You it's know? one of those, I think with him, it was the right thing the wrong way. Right, yeah. yeah he. I don't think, you know... I, from what I know, and I don't know him personally at all, but he was just, you know, trying to create, and he had an opportunity, and didn't think it all the way through that, you know, and all of a sudden it exploded on him, and then he had to fight, you know, and it hasn't hurt him at all, you know, really in the in the in the end, but the mess that was created could have been avoided, you know. 
So on that note, uh, aside from Shepard Ferry, who else inspires or informs your artistic style? A lot of people. Uh, stuff from, you know, the beginning, like Alfred Stieglitz, I was always a fan of just because that's one of the first photographers that saw photography as art. And I read everything I could about him and studied his work. Uh, and, and staying on that historic end, Lewis Hine, I loved because he photographed industry. And that was my first real passion was to photograph that type of thing. Uh, but all the way up to like people like uh, Estevan Oriol, I'm a huge fan of his. He's an artist from California who started out as a band manager and was photographing Cypress Hill <laughs> just while he was on the road with them. And that became how he has his own clothing line. And, you know, he's uh, contracted to do huge lines of, clo- of you know, uh, apparel and photographing everybody and anybody that they're coming to him now. And, uh, and that's, a, you know, that's a model for me to mm-hmm. see how these guys are doing it. Estevan Oriol and, uh, and his friend Mr. Cartoon is a tattoo artist, but they've expanded. They looked beyond their own little neighborhood and made a worldwide impact. If you look them up, you'll see it. Uh, but there's so many others. I mean, like all the way to Georgia O'Keeffe, you know, just the, the way artists create and why. Uh, there's so many, you know. I have a funny story about O'Keeffe. Um, when I was uh, in middle school, I was getting braces, right? And uh, the orthodontist that I had had O'Keeffe poster, uh, not posters, excuse me, paintings everywhere, prints in every room in in her office and it was a big office it was a moderately sized practice and you know me being an ignorant teenager i knew nothing about o'keefe's work and and it's just like oh those are those are very pretty colors and everything years later years later uh after i'd gone through college and learned something about her work i actually saw that orthodontist again because uh it was like at a, a city event some some festival or whatever and aside from her complimenting me on my on my teeth, thanks for fixing my crooked teeth, by the way. Um, but aside from that, I said, hey, you know, I wanted to tell you, did you know all this stuff about George O'Keefe? And you know what she said? I had no idea. And I'm like, wow. and I'm like, you invested all of this money in these prints, and you know nothing about them. I think she bought them from a catalog. Right. It was just it was just dumbfounding. A certain look that you like, and boom. And yeah, it. it was an empty influence, right, and right. that that just kind of bothered me because, in hindsight, knowing what I know about that artist, as a teenager, if I knew that and I was looking at that stuff, it, it would be completely different perception. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, she was much more than just, she didn't just paint flowers. Exactly. That's exa- <laughs> I mean, it would have made my trips to the orthodontist that much more enjoyable. <laughs> <Indeed>. <laughs> and they weren't enjoyable at all. Right. Let's be real. And I, I, I liked, you know, after reading about Stieglitz and her, they were, they were married. You know, they were a couple. Yeah. But the way they lived was so beyond the norm, you know, and they ended up living separate on different ends of the country. Uh, and it was just an interesting uh, education for myself to learn about them like that. Uh, and that part of that, just how they conducted themselves was uh, inspiring. Yeah, the uh, artist connected to artists in that way. It's always kind of an interesting story. Um, And it's never an easy one. They don't always seem to just be uh, happily ever after. Right. Because there's there's ego involved in a lot of things, and, you know, it's it's always interesting. Right. Um, Well, you know, switching gears on that, um, 
you had mentioned uh, Hein and taking pictures of industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did what type of industry did you take pictures of? Uh, it was more when I was a student at YSU. Uh, the Jeanette Blast Furnace, which is the what was the last standing furnace in Youngstown. Uh, I didn't know that at the time. I just knew it was fascinating landscape that we could go and walk around and take pictures. Uh, and that led uh, that some of my still some of my favorite photographs. And some of those I've still used in other designs. I go back to those images. Uh, part of it was because it was our history. It's who we were. It's what kind of made Youngstown. Uh, and as I was learning more, it was making me feel more connected. Uh, and then that led to f- tagging along with people like uh, Rick Rollins, who runs the uh, Youngstown Steel Heritage Foundation. And he has a museum that he's created over years because a lot of people wouldn't listen to him to save this stuff. But he's, it's phenomenal. And, and I've gone with him a few times to photograph at other mills that were closing uh, and it's fascinating, not only in the sense of the scale and the, the architecture and all that of those places, but the history of it. And you get to walk in there when these places are normally shut down. Uh, and it's, it's just a, it's kind of an eye-opener to see how things can change overnight. Some of these places in Steubenville I was in, you walk in there and the, and the locker rooms, it looks like they just put their things down and walked out and never went back. Hmm. You see personal items and things like that. And uh, just the, that, all that about that scene, the industrial scene, just fascinated me. Uh, it does me as well. And this is why I brought it up, because I, I, I sort of have an, a very strong interest in uh, documenting the, the peak of human performance in the sense that, like, you know, at the, at the time, you know, talking about the furnaces and... And even, like, the engineering behind trains, right. just fascinating stuff to me. But, like, have you ever seen one of those earth movers? Like, uh, these are particularly big over I, – I think the one that I'm referring to was over in, in uh, Holland or something like that where, um, I mean, it was easily the size of this building. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just massive. How do, how do we as humans even conceptualize that, engineer it, and actually it. get it to work? Right. And so – uh, you know, you and I, in that sense, I think are of, are of ilk nature in that, you know, documenting this, this innovation is particularly fascinating just because it's like, wow, we can actually do this now that, uh, steel mills have pushed back, you know, that industry's mm-hmm. faded a bit. Um, looking at what we are capable of now, it's there, despite the spectrum, it's kind of, they're we're looking at different things like innovation in that sense, or as I see, I'm speaking for myself here. It's, 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 um, different, right. you know, it's not like grand, large in scale, massive engineering. It's like little tiny things like the phone that I'm holding right. to record this podcast. Right. What will uh, be the next? Yeah. It, it was like, uh, the people, you know, the Egyptians built the pyramids massive and the same thing was, that's how I saw, industry the steel industry you know, it was kind of like it was this larger than life gargantuan thing. right yeah. and yeah. Uh, to make that scale of things to, to create other things just as mind boggling uh, and it's now it's it's part of our past I don't think that'll ever grow to that scale ever again 
Uh, but it's like, what is next? What's the mm-hmm. next frontier? And it seems like it's, it's technology, you know, and, and where that can take us. And it's fascinating. Just- well, especially how that builds into your, your medium of choice. You know, um, you've got, so for, for the listening audience and and Tony, definitely fill me in here. You've got a number of old uh, vintage cameras. It looks like antique cameras here. What's the oldest camera that you have in in your collection? Uh, they're not record breaking or anything like that. They're not, they're not extremely rare, but there are two, uh, old Kodaks with the old little, you know, they're, and they're like a, Four, not even a four by five. They're just a, like a one twenty size film camera uh, that were used by a relative of mine uh, from my uh, my ex wife's family, and she was the photographer for Youngstown Sheet and Tube. One of the photographers, and these cameras are probably from the thirties or forties, uh, and that's probably the oldest thing I have. But what I've used personally was almost in, exclusively through YSU. I used. A 1960s Raleigh Flex twin lens reflex camera, just because the negatives, you know, the, the, the resolution you could get was phenomenal to make big prints. Uh, and I used that in a Canon AE1, and that's on that shelf with right next to it. Those were the first two cameras I really used. And I continued using that Raleigh Flex up until even when I had the following two cameras on the shelf or Nikons, the F5s, and those were the top of the line at the time. And literally, and I was a stalwart. I didn't want to go digital until a friend of mine who was printing for me uh, on the north side here, uh, I went to his studio, his home, to pick up prints. And he had a box with the new Nikon D300 at the time was just coming out. And he said, do you want to try it? I took it home that night and shot 200 pictures <laughs> and, and looked at him instantly at home and that was it. The F5 and the Raleigh Flex got put on the shelf mm-hmm. almost overnight. Uh, just because the quality, and I was waiting for the quality to get there. That's, that was my really my only, it wasn't like I was resistant to the technology. I was glad it was there and I knew it was going to accelerate to where you'd get the quality that you would get from any other camera that you could find. Uh, and then once I saw that, I was sold. And I still use that D300. I have a couple of them. Take them out for a spin every now and then? All the time, yeah, I love them. <laughs> I, I, I wish I could do that with the F5s, but I just, they're collecting dust now. So what's your, uh, what's your current camera? I still use the D300 okay. exclusively, okay. yeah. And, and I've got a smaller, the J1 little Nikon, but I don't use it that much, but I think I will. It, it's becoming more and more just because it's smaller. Because a lot of times people, when they see a normal DSLR, you know, and I like to photograph people when they, they won't put up their shields and they want to just, so they'll be themselves. Right. And when you pull out that big camera, right away, most people want you to show their, their good side. Mm-hmm. And a smaller camera lets you be a little more discreet. Yeah. So that's, you know. It's a complete paradigm shift. Right. For oh, yeah. the, well, when for people the... see they're going to be photographed, that changes their whole expression, everything, uh, unless you can keep it hidden on some level. Not that you want anything. You know, it's not uh, to try to get something that shouldn't be shown. It's just to show things honestly, mm-hmm. you know. The authenticity of the moment. Right. I, th- I think that's what I typically people, refer people to it genuine, as. Uh, yeah. It's all the better. That's one of the uh, – Edward Steichen, another photographer I loved from the 
40s and 50s, uh, who was also a cohort with Stieglitz, said that uh, the most difficult thing in portraiture is to get a genuine response. And that's, you know, when people have a camera pointed at them, I'm the same way. I don't want to be photographed. You'll, you know, the, and nowadays it's too easy. And you, and you mm -hmm. become, all them shields get broken down somewhat because of a selfie, you know, mm -hmm. which I really don't do that often just because. Uh, but that's, you know, that's what you want when you're photographing someone is them to be genuine. So you can show something more than what's there. You know, that's such a great way to say it. And, um, you know, on the note of selfies, uh, I think uh, a lot of people are just, they, they're annoyed with them just because they see it as, you know, an extension of, uh, I don't want to say people are being selfish about it, but kind of uh, egocentric. Right. And, and right. that's completely reasonable. Right. But uh, as a, I, I think about, um, I think about it in this way because, like, uh, a self sort of aggrandizing selfie is completely hollow and has no personality to it. It's like the complete right. opposite of authentic. Um, but the same technology used to do that is the same that is, you know, uh, recording, um, you know, uh, police officers pulling people over and then, you know, shooting them like, you know, right. with what's been going on recently. And it's it's interesting that the cross purposes with one device. Right. And, you know, the fact that they're both capturing images and they're perceived completely differently. Right. Now, a lot of that depends on context, naturally. Right. But um, I, I've, I've just, I've always seen that as an interesting relationship. Hmm. Yeah, like the, the selfies I tend to see, that's when people can put up their best facade Yes, that's what facade. That's the key you know, word. Yeah, yeah, because they have the control. They can. If you look at ninety percent of a, of any selfie that you look at, they're posing to try to sh put their best foot forward, mm -hmm. uh, and you know, and that's okay. It's not. It's not the. There are worse things happening in the world, like we you just mentioned, uh, that are photographed, uh, and it's and it is context, and it is seeing the whole story because too often what we're shown through the mass media uh, is not always the whole story of what we see from a body camera or a dash cam. It's, oh, completely. You know, we don't always see yeah. the whole thing. So, so, and people are quick to rush to judgment. And that's a, that's a whole other world of problems that we need to, you know, figure out. Uh, but... Uh, I think the common thread there is that rush to judgment. Right. Yeah. But uh, I, at any rate, I digress because... Yeah. We could go on and, on, could go and on. on and on about that for sure. Um, I wanted to ask you um, about uh, living and practicing here in Youngstown. So uh, you, you grew up here, you went to college here, you moved away for a little bit, you came back. Is, can you imagine yourself anywhere else? You know what? Uh, I've thought about it. I've been asked in the last couple years, you know, very recently, uh, have you ever thought about just staying in New York? Because I've gone back and forth recently to try to make some things happen, and it's exciting and all that. And I've been to another area near uh, in North Carolina that would be nice to step into a giant arts community and just be a small piece of a of a of a massive crowd. Yeah, and that doesn't really interest me. Uh, I like it here because you can be a part of something that's really helping. Because the city was trying to is still trying to find its new identity, 
And it's fun to try to be a part of that, to help that progress. Uh, and at the same time, now with the way, the ease of with technology gives us to get your work out there, you don't have to be in New York City. You know, unless you want to be in their scene exclusively, but you can, you know, your work, the, the world is big and we can be connected to it in many ways uh, through technology. You can be seen if you work hard enough. Uh, and I feel like, you know, if, if things go the way I want, yeah, things will be on a bigger scale, a much larger audience. But I can do that from right here. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't see the need uh, to have to be in any one particular place. And I've talked to several people who have left and come back. And a lot of us seem to have a similar reason. Uh, and it's simple. It's the people. Exactly. You come back and you feel like people care a little bit about each other and how they're doing. Uh, and look out for each other, and that means a lot. That's a you know, I don't want to be in a in a live in a city where everyone's got blinders on to each other. You know, uh, <clears throat> the world can be cold, and if it feels a little warmer here, good. You know, absolutely, it is so much more of a personable place, and that right. that's why I, I love working here and and knowing and interacting with everyone, right. you know. And one other thing that, about that is that you've had the good fortune of being able to produce artwork that is popular here, yes, but elsewhere, you know. That's not always a compatible relationship with, with folks that are producing artwork here. Right. Um, and, and vice versa, you know. A New York artist could have tremendous success in New York but nowhere else. Right. Um, so that, that having that base of operations here, I think, is you know, beneficial in so many ways, but, you know, um, you don't have to, uh, let's put it this way. I think living is a bit easier here, Right. you know, yeah, and, and consequently, cr- and creating is easier here. Um, and, and that's, that's a very liberating thing. And I, I, that's why I would really like to try to tap into. And even folks that, that live here, like, do what Tony did. Like, go away for a little bit if you want. Come back, but you know you may end up finding your voice here in the least of, the least unexpected of places. Right. And I that and I think that's why a lot of people are coming back, uh, in a sense, because they leave and part of them isn't isn't quite there. And then once they return, it's like, oh wow, this was that one piece that I've been missing, and they hold on to that. Right. Yeah. yeah. If you would have asked me even five years ago. I would be sitting where I'm sitting as far as Artists of the Rust Belt and so on. I would have never been able to imagine that. But it just kind of happened because of my own motivation to create and to be a part of something positive. Because, I, you know, if there was one thing I did know, it was that uh, there was work to do. to Not only for myself, but for... The city, the area, mm-hmm. not just Youngstown. It's the whole, you know, I'm a Trumbull County guy, you know, which is, seems to some people, it seems like you're a world away. But we're all in the same boat, right? you know, and we're all trying to improve our own uh, way of life, you know, because it was kind of on a, it was kind of wandering for a long time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I see, you know, uh, good directions, a lot of good things happening. And it's, uh, and if you can help push that, along and make it you know my problem is patience <laughs> you know i want it to happen faster right but so that's why i that that's part of the motivation to be here you know you've got family here 
I have a sister here. I, I, my bro- I had an older brother who passed away last year. Uh, and I have two children. I'm divorced, but I have two kids, and that was a big part of why I stayed here. Uh, I have to say, I was when I finished grad school and I came back here. I was teaching part time. I was, and things were starting to happen that were going to keep me here. It, it, I could feel it pulling me. Uh, and my, and, but I was at the same time. I was a freshly MFA in my pocket, you know. And I was thinking, the world is my oyster. I can go anywhere. And I had, you know interviews out there and uh life throws a knuckleball at you my marriage ended and i was not going to leave this town without my kids you know and uh and i said you know what whatever's going to happen i see things happening here that i love and it's not that difficult to make that choice uh for my kids and for myself you know uh to be a little bit selfish i was like yeah i can i can make some really Fun things happen, not just for me, but for mm-hmm. the entire area, uh, and be happy with that. That's good that you know you you wanted to stick around and make this place a better place for your kids. Yeah, I've, I've, exactly. I, I wanted to, sh- you know, they've heard things, and they and they're young, they're twelve and fourteen, but they've all heard, you know, and they're aware of what the reputation used to be of Youngstown, and it's you know, and that is what it was, but it's not what it is or what it's going to be. And I love, and I'm stealing the quote from Derek. I think his last name is McDowell, who yeah. runs Youngstown Flea. Phenomenal mm-hmm. guy. He made a quote recently that I swear should be on a billboard uh, that says, "It's not what we were, it's not who we are, it's what we're becoming." Mm-hmm. And that just says so much uh, to what you know how you should look at things. And know? it's that current that's really exciting to right. be involved in. Exactly. Absolutely. So many people feel that way uh, that I've spoken to uh, on the podcast and otherwise. And what's refreshing about that is they want to keep that current going. Right. You know, we all jump in and float downstream at a rapid pace and it just keeps going, going, going. Um, are your kids going to be artists? I don't know that yet. <laughs> My daughter is pretty fearless in the sense that when I'm going to go photograph or do whatever, even here in the studio, she's happy to be a part of it. And I, I see her possibly going that direction. My son, I don't know yet. Uh, I was always I was a sports guy when I was younger. I played sports till I was like 26 years old, and uh, was kind of pushed into it as a kid. And I swore that I wouldn't do that to my kids. And my son is a reader, but he's also a video game mm-hmm. aficionado, to say the least. What's he going to be into? I don't know. He's one of them thinker types, and he's quiet like I was. How old is he? He's 14. Okay. And he hasn't really... I don't, I don't see a clear-cut choice made yet of what, how he's going to go through high school even, you know, what he's going to find. But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm curious as well as excited to see what they evolve to. Well, it seems like they're both embracing the creative as a concept. Yeah, I think they see it. Yeah. My son is heavily into films. I mean, we go to the theater twice a month. And it's not just as a fan. He's, he's starting to, like, kind of break it down, like the stories. and Like Tarantino. Yeah, we have yeah. them conversations. And that's it, sometimes I have to step back out of it and look at this conversation from the outside and go, this kid is breaking down the stories. And it's, it's interesting. And I... And I I almost tend to like T. You ought to, I call him T. His name's Anthony. I, I, maybe you ought to get into the theater, and you know, you don't have to act, but you could be a big part of that scene. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Uh, and my daughter, on the other hand, she's happy to carry a camera around and uh, just go and 
capture and uh, and she'll come in here and throw paint everywhere and I love it you know so we'll see well that's great well I'm definitely looking forward to uh, maybe seeing their art someday um, and certainly yours do you have any shows coming up uh, or what's going on where can well, we see the next great Tony Nicholas piece <laughs> maybe at the soap gallery we're, we're talking about some things uh, we'll see uh, but you never know. Uh, right now, I'm just gearing up for the Artists of the Rust Belt's next event, August 6th, is uh, the Rust Belt Revival show. Uh, and we're, it's probably going to be bigger. A couple great bands are going to play. We're expecting cars from all over the area. Last year, we had guys from Pittsburgh, Akron, Cleveland, more than 200 cars there. Uh, and hopefully about 30 artists. We'll see. And, and th- that's still open to, to you know... There's room for more, so um, the, I'm putting that out there now, and I've, I'm going to do it again here let soon, that we have room for more artists and to come and, you know, the whole part of that show was an experiment to get the car culture people together with the artists and see what would happen. And this is our fourth year of doing it, and each one has gotten bigger. Uh, so, so far, so good. But that's next. Cool. Well, thanks, Tony. Appreciate talking with me, and uh, we'll check in with you sometime in the future to be determined. Fantastic. Anyway, folks, you can uh, check out Tony's work uh, here in the city. And uh, do you have a website? Uh, I do not. Facebook. Facebook. You can definitely find him on social media. And uh, I got to tell you, I think you could probably charge for tours of your studio here. Uh, (laughs) Cool. There's something on every corner. That's right. All right. Take care. See everyone.